Well, I am excited about this week and the next few weeks because we are back in the book of Acts, and uh, I think it's going to be a really exciting time. I was grateful for Mike Kotecki last week to fill in again. He and Melanie will be transitioning in here in a few weeks. I'm going to interview them so we can get to know them, and they're going to be joining our leadership team. They're actually going to be um, leading down at PBA, the Bible study, so that'll be, be a really great thing. I think this morning will be unique because uh, I'm going to involve you guys in a discussion here in a bit. Um, as we go on, and I think it'll be a really uh, good and probing discussion, but we need to begin with setting some context here, so if you would, please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. As you know, we've been in an ongoing exposition covering the history of the church. Those of you that have not been with us, if you want to understand the book of Acts, Luke is the one who is bringing the content to us here, inspired by God. And the purpose of the book of Acts is to give us an account of inspired church history. So church history actually begins in Acts 2. So anybody that goes and wants to study church history, you should start in Acts 2 and then start reading from then. Because in Acts 2, what do we have? the first church ever planted by God, the church in Jerusalem. And because we're going to look today at, I have coined, the most famous little church in the Bible, or we could say the most faithful little church in the Bible, the most famous or faithful big church in the Bible is the church in Jerusalem. That's who you meet in Acts 2. They really, it's the largest church we ever see assembled in your Bible. It really is on center stage through, really, the book of Acts covers roughly 30 years. So the first 30 years of the church, Jerusalem is spearheading the ministry that's growing across the globe. But what I think is amazing, beloved, is when you hit Acts chapter 11, we are going to meet what we might say is the most famous little church in the Bible. In fact, let me just ask you, what do you guys know about the church in Antioch? Any of you ever studied the church in Antioch? Thought about the church in Antioch? What do you guys know about the church in Antioch? You can, we can talk about it. Anything? Um, didn't they always speak to Jews? They would always speak to Jews. So I'm glad you said that. What's most notable about the church in Antioch is actually we've just come out of the gospel going to the Gentiles. Remember? The gospel starts in Jerusalem, then goes to Judea and Samaria, north and south. Then Acts 1.8, what did Jesus say? The gospel is going to go across the globe. Jerusalem, the rock hits in Jerusalem. The gospel saves a bunch of Jews. Then Judea and Samaria, a whole bunch more Jews are saved. Then the gospel starts to spread out through Philip going down to the Ethiopian, taking it down to the gospel down to North Africa. And then Saul gets saved and he's commissioned to go to the Gentiles. And the church in Antioch is actually your first Gentile church that adds Jews to their congregation. So before this, every congregation had been Jewish churches that is now adding Gentiles. Now we have our first Gentile church adding Jews. Very important. So that's an important distinction in Antioch. What else do you know about Antioch? Yeah, so we'll find out in a little bit that the reason the gospel went to Antioch was because God allowed Stephen to be martyred and persecution to break out in Jerusalem so he could take the gospel to the ends of the earth and Antioch is one of his stopping points. God goes and is going to save a whole bunch of Gentiles in Antioch. Yep. Yes. Now I don't know if we'll get to that today, but they were first called Christians in Antioch. 
And as I will share with you probably next week, that was not a term of endearment. It actually was a derogatory term assigned to them that they eventually happily accepted. So we'll talk about that maybe next week, though. So that's true. They were first called Christians. Yes, what else? You guys are on the right track. Here's a question we should ask. When you are studying narrative in your Bible, here's a little hermeneutics lesson in our fellowship group. Hermeneutics is how you study the Bible, the principles you use to derive meaning. Okay, Hermeneutics. If you want to just get some terms in your mind, exegesis is to pull out the meaning. Hermeneutics is the tools that you use to go get the meaning. Okay? The principles that you use to use the tools, excuse me. So, when we're studying narrative, we see Luke laying out before us 28 chapters in the book of Acts. When we come to Acts chapter 11, verse 19, the question we have to ask is, why Luke, of all that you could have included in church history? Remember, he's laying out the history of the church to strengthen believers for all time. So, the book of Acts is meant to equip you, believer, from now until Jesus Christ returns, how to be strong in your faith and stand. Book of Acts. The narrative is put forth to help you stand, to hold on to the truth. So we have to ask this question. Why, Luke, of all the churches you could have put forth for us, of all the places that we see churches born, in fact, we just saw Peter visit a whole bunch of little local churches that were starting to get spread out. We're going to see three or four more churches planted. But Luke decides to bring the church of Antioch to the surface of the book of Acts and shine a light on Antioch. And do you know that really for the rest of the book of Acts, Antioch is going to be center stage for us as the main hub that ministry goes through in many ways to take the gospel across the globe. In fact, let me just before I answer the question, why did Luke bring Antioch to the surface? I just want you to think about a couple things. Just, just by way of comparison. Philippi and the Philippians, that's a pretty big book to us. We know Philippians, Philippi. It's mentioned about four times in your New Testament. Rome, Romans, eight times. Ephesus, Ephesians, 16. Antioch, 18. Antioch is brought to the surface and the location of Antioch and the church of Antioch more than any other little church we have in the Bible. That's why I call it the most famous little church in the Bible. And you could make a case here, beloved, that the way Luke lays out the church of Antioch for us, it really becomes the, 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 um, the model for all other churches. So the most big, famous church in the Bible, Jerusalem, but all these little churches that spread out across the globe, Antioch becomes the model for them. And that's why Luke keeps putting them forth to tell everyone to look to them. Very, very interesting um, where we're at in the book of Acts, just as you're, as you're thinking about Antioch and it being born, and when it came about. Antioch was probably planted in A.D. somewhere around 44 or 45. Well, Jesus died when? 33. Now we're in Acts 11, okay, and we're in 44 or 45. So really, Acts is starting to speed up. We're going to cover another 20 years here in the rest of the chapters. So we've got the, the church here in Antioch planted around 44. 44 or 45, I'll show you that more later and how we know that. Here's what's interesting about the church of Antioch. A couple facts for you to know about them. They are recognized as such a special church and such a unique church and such an important church that Barnabas is going to go bring the Apostle Paul down to equip them for a year. That's their importance. The Jerusalem church hears of them and every time there's a need, they first send resources to support Antioch. 
It, it gets represented in the scriptures, as we'll see, as a discipleship-making church. It's known for its godly men and its elders being affirmed. They were a missionary-sending and supporting church. Did you know that Paul stopped in here probably four times, any time he could get back to Antioch, and he didn't just go there to strengthen them, he went there to be strengthened. So the Apostle Paul wanted to land in Antioch every chance he got. In the scriptures, the book of Antioch, I mean the, the church in Antioch is only spoken about positively. Let me just give you some statements I've compiled through Acts. The hand of the Lord was with them. News reached them about Jerusalem and they wanted to support them. Barnabas witnessed the grace of God among them. Barnabas saw that they were devoted to the Lord and told them to stay devoted. Considerable numbers were brought and saved there. Disciples were born there. Leaders were appointed there. The grace of God was among them there. Everywhere you go, they're called good, they're called faithful, they're called teachable, they're called reliable. This church, beloved, listen, is a model for us. And so you start asking the question again, Luke, if Luke was here this morning, we'd say, Luke, why bring Antioch to the surface in Acts for us? And I think he'd say, because you need to watch them, know them, learn them, because they are a model for what you need to be like. So anytime you run into the church of Antioch, and you'll, I'll show you in a moment, Luke brings them to the surface for us to look at them and learn from them. Do you know what else we know about Antioch? Church history tells us that the church in Antioch, who we're going to see born right here, actually probably stayed faithful, this was a fun study for me, for another 300 or so years after it is planted. In fact, do you know who the pastor was for 40 years, those of you that love church history, in Antioch? Ignatius. Before Ignatius was fed to the animals and killed in a Roman Colosseum for his faithfulness, he pastored Antioch for 40 years. In fact, 67 to 107 AD, after Paul and Barnabas and these other men were there, they handed it off to Ignatius who faithfully shepherded this church. And in fact, the city of Antioch, which became a main, uh, the number one really uh, city for so much of religious influence over the next 300 years until there was a set of earthquakes in the 4th century and then the Mongolians came in the 5th and 6th century and such heavy persecution the believers got spread out and the church got watered down because if you know church history, Constantine legalized Christianity and unbelievers filled up the church and so much of the church was lost. But... Prior to that, you see 13, excuse me, 300 years of faithfulness. In fact, if you go ahead in church history, the golden mouth, John Christum, was also a pastor there. Beloved, this church, you can study all through it through church history. You can read about it online if you want some faithful resources I can send to you. But this church was known for its faithfulness. So let's back up for a second. If this church is known for its faithfulness, and Luke includes it for us to look to and learn from, then here's how I want to approach this church in Antioch. And I think this is going to bless you as you think about this church, because this church is going to help you see what a healthy local church looks like again. And that's what Luke keeps bringing to the surface. In fact, the reason Luke included this is he wants us to see all the characteristics of this church. And then I think it's important for us to ask the question, do we as believers and as a local church look like Antioch? And you as individual believers, do you contribute to the health of the church like the first Antioch Christians did? Here's your outline for the next couple weeks, and then I'll read the passage and we'll go on. 
seven characteristics of what I've called the most faithful little church in the Bible. Seven characteristics of the most faithful little church in the Bible. And I'm going to read you the seven characteristics up front. And as I read them, and we'll unfold these over the next three or four weeks, what you can do is thank the Lord that He has dropped you into a church that very much resembles the church that Luke puts forth as one that is a model. Here's the seven characteristics of the most faithful little church in the Bible. One, they were affirmed by godly men as those evidencing the unmistakable grace of God. We're going to see this morning Barnabas show up and he's going to be blown away because he's going to go, what in the world? The grace of God is all over these people's lives. We're going to talk about that this morning. That's the first characteristic. Second, they had a voracious appetite to hear Scripture and apply it without compromise. They love the Word. Next week we'll probably see they they may have met every single day (laughs) to hear the Word of God. And Paul and Barnabas poured it into them. Three, they did not hesitate to serve other needy churches at great personal cost to self. When needs arose and there was a famine in the land in Judea, this church gives massively from their hearts to serve another ministry outside their own. Fourth characteristic, their holy living and bold outreach was used to win many to Christ. They are put forth as a church that God used as an instrument for many souls to be saved. Fifth, they were a missionary sending and strengthening church. It is so fun to see the Apostle Paul through the book of Acts be regularly strengthened by them. Paul, of all people, is coming to Antioch so he can be ministered to. Six, they had a rich discipleship culture led by faithful and able men. What rises to the surface in Acts and even in our passage tonight, uh, today is men were leading a discipleship culture. And seven... Seventh characteristic, they stood to their convictions and flourished in the midst of persecution. That's right. A faithful church is known when hostility and persecution comes, they still flourish. So that will be what we'll do in the coming weeks. So let's read about the church in Antioch. I'm going to read 19 all the way down to 30. And then we'll probably get through one characteristic this morning. And here's what I want to do when we go through this characteristic. I'm going to have you guys answer some of the questions. Why does Luke want us to know this? And how can we learn from it? And we're going to look at some particular passages that fill out the church in Antioch. Because I want you guys learning from them. And I, I got to tell you, I have been absolutely thrilled. I get why Joel James says this is his favorite church in the Bible. He's got a great little sermon on Antioch as well. So, notice I'll set the context and give you some content here. Notice verse 18 of chapter 11. We're heading out of the first Gentile church being born through Peter with Cornelius. When they heard this, they were quieted down and glorified God. This is, who's quieted down there? Well, the disciples in Jerusalem are now accepting Gentiles into the church. Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Now... Luke brings to the surface the first Gentile-planted church that's going to add Jews to the mix. So then, those that were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the Word of God to no one except the Jews alone. Now stop for a second. You remember, Stephen's martyred, persecution breaks out in Jerusalem, and believers scatter all over And churches start to be born and planted. Remember, we're probably 10 years from the death of Stephen by now. So you've got local churches established, and those churches are sending out people to go evangelize 
and spread the gospel and see more churches planted. These uh, locations that are mentioned here are Hellenistic Jews, so they're Greek-speaking Jews that are going out and preaching the gospel. And it says there in 19 that it seems like the majority of them are just preaching to Jews, but, verse 20, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, that would have been locations like where Barnabas was from, who came to Antioch. Notice, he could have picked any of the churches in the area, but Luke lifts up Antioch and wants to highlight them. And he began speaking to the Greeks also. So now you've got Jews who have seen what God has done through the Apostle Peter with Cornelius, and they're out preaching. To who now? Non-Jews. Greeks. Remember, there's only two types of people on the planet. Non-Jews and Jews. That means not Greeks, non-Jews, and Jews. And watch this, 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. So those preaching the gospel, God was among them working. And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So he's in Antioch, and they're in Cyrene, and they're in Cyprus, and in Antioch, they began speaking the word of God, and a large number is saved. Look at 22. The news about them... Those saved, in Antioch in particular, reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem. What did they do? They sent Barnabas off to Antioch. By the way, Barnabas also is another character where you see nothing negatively spoken about him all the way through your Bible, all the way through the book of Acts. Luke continually lifts him up as a model to follow all the way through. He's an encourager. He's a faithful man. So, look what happens. The church in Jerusalem says, Hey, God saved a bunch of people. This isn't different than what we do at GIBC. We've planted six churches. How have they been planted? Usually like this. Hey, GIBC, we know a family member there, or we know of your ministry, and God saved some believers here, and there's some people gathering that need a church. And we say, okay, we'll send you a Barnabas. (laughs) And we send him out. It's not different than that. So, 23, when he, Barnabas, arrived, notice this. What did he see when Barnabas got to Antioch? All he could see was, notice, he witnessed the grace of God. The way to describe the church in Antioch when Barnabas looked at it, he just said, whoa, the grace of God is unmistakable in these people. Store that thought. We're going to come back to that in a moment. He was so overwhelmed, he rejoiced and began to encourage them. He saw so much fruit, so much grace on display that he said to them with a resolute heart, remain true to the Lord, saying, you're already showing so much fruit. Don't deviate. And then look at what Luke does. He goes offline and says, oh yeah, don't forget what a great example Barnabas is, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And then back online. And between Barnabas' ministry and the church in Antioch's ministry, he kind of pushes forward time at the end of 24 and says, loads more were brought to the Lord. What's Barnabas do? Uh, i got to get some help. A lot of people are being saved. God's doing a great work. I know who we need to get. The apostle to the Gentiles. It's a good call, Barnabas. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And look at this. For an entire year, Pastor Barnabas and Pastor Paul equipped Antioch. And for an entire year, they did three things. They met with the church. They taught considerable numbers. And as their fruit continued to be born in society, they were labeled, you could say, Christians. The idea there of considerable numbers, they were first called Christians. The idea is they were first assigned a title. 
The culture called them Christians. Now, at this time, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. We'll look at that later. And, the pro, and, the, and in proportion that any of the disciples had means in Antioch, look at this, other churches are starting to starve and suffer in Judea. They determined to send a contribution for the relief to the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, and they sent it with Barnabas and Saul to take it to the elders. Stop there. Okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump into the first characteristic of Antioch, and I'm going to show it to you, and then we're going to fill it out. Characteristic one of the most faithful little church in the Bible. They were affirmed by godly men as those evidencing the unmistakable grace of God. Notice it again. Why do I say they were affirmed by godly men? Because Luke makes a point to document how credible of a source Barnabas is in the fruit that he's seen. You know, it's, it's one thing for someone that we might say immature to come into a place and say, well, they seem godly. They seem wonderful. They seem to be growing. I think I see the grace of God. It's another thing to lift up one of the most choice servants, we might say, with a great degree of discernment, a great holy life, and when he comes in, he's overwhelmed with all of the discernment, all the biblical categories he has, and he looks at this church and he says, wow, that right there is unmistakable evidence that God has touched these people. Notice, Verse 24, Barnabas was a good man, full, overfilling with a life in the Spirit and a faith, a life of conviction, a life of courage, a life that fears God. So that's who's noticing this. And look at 23. When he arrived, he witnessed the grace of God. Beloved, what does it mean for someone like a Barnabas that has great discernment to walk into a bunch of new believers and be knocked back on his heels and only be able to say, this could only be done by the grace of God. What do you think he saw? I'm asking you. What did he see? I know what he saw, but I'm asking you. What did he see? What could only be attributed to the grace of God? What must he have seen in this congregation? Yeah. Jews and Gentiles and they were working together. starting to learn to love each other. That can only come from the grace of God. Remember, we saw the hostility that's been going on for thousands of years between Jew and Gentile. So that, for sure. And then that last line you said there, that could only be done by the Lord, right? Well, I want you to notice that's exactly what Luke wants us to see. Notice something in 21. This grace of God that was unmistakable, it came as a result, we might say, to pull it out of the con- just to, to make it emerge from the context here. 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. Stop there. You could say this. That is a, an anthropomorphism, if you know what that is. It's where um, the biblical authors use um, um, uh, descriptions of things that we can understand, like a hand, to give us a picture of what God would be doing. What does it mean when the hand of the Lord comes on and touches a life? Power. Power. We might say, when he got to Antioch, all he saw was the power of God and God's fingerprints all over their life. It was unmistakable to him that God's hand had moved and pulled out hearts of stone and put in soft hearts that were pliable. It could not be missed. Think about that. 
It was unmistakable that almighty, powerful God had reached down and touched their lives. It could not be missed. He walked in and he said, God has been among these people. That was that last line you said right there. It could not be missed that the Lord, the hand of the Lord had reached down and done a work. Think of that, beloved. That means he is saying these are believers. Think that, well, that's, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Listen, all, all the time today, churches are filled up with a whole bunch of people that may or may not know Christ, that may or may not look like they have the hand of the Lord in their life, that may or may not look like they've been transformed, and yet it's called a church because they gather at a building. What Barnabas was seeing was, God has touched these people's life with the grace of God. And so my question to you again is, what does it look like when the hand of God touches a life with His grace? Yes. I, I think Romans 5, you know, because he saw their hope. They saw them uh, exalting in the glory of God. What? In tribulation. And they saw their perseverance and proven character. And in that proven character, hope. Hope that didn't disappoint because the love of God had been shown in their heart. Yeah, there, there was a perspective that had changed of hope. They went from a hopeless people. You've got to understand, Antioch is a, is, a, is a bastion of worldliness and trade and Roman ungodliness. And, and it's, a, it's a segregated society that I didn't mention earlier where you've got probably 25,000 Jews who meet in one location and you've got Gre- Greeks that are philosophical that meet in another location. And then these Christians are coming together and there's all this hostility and persecution that's going to press in upon them. And they remain hopeful. That's the grace of God. Can't miss that. Yeah. Um, like if we had, if there was, say, like a, a non-godly church there, that would have been, you know, a bunch of unbelievers mixed in, just basically complaining and living just as the pagans. But they were living completely different lives than if it wasn't touched by God. So different that they had to come up with a name for them, probably to associate yeah. them with this Christ. You just think about like the Gentiles and the Jews. They were all yeah. persecuted. Yeah. You guys are so when the grace of God comes on a life, there's hope, there's love, there's there's a, a whole new perspective. And notice there's a radical turning. Notice a great many who believed, look back in the text there. A great many who believed, verse 21 at the end, turned to the Lord. That's language probably of repentance that he's implying, but he's also probably saying they turned from the culture and joined the church, probably speaking of baptism, probably speaking of joining the church. So now you've got a group of people that are going public, and I'll revisit this in a little bit, and saying, Christ is now my Lord, Acts 2, I've left the culture and joined the church. I've turned from my old life. It's radical. Beloved, think about this. The grace of God, I want you to think about this for a second. When the grace of God visits a life, we tend to flatten that out sometimes. When we read grace of God, we just think of conversion, right? And that's good to think about conversion because the grace of God does visit us in conversion. Can you think of any passages where the, literally the language of the grace of God has come and brought salvation? Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourself, it's a gift of God. So clearly, these people were marveling that God had bestowed upon them a gift they did not deserve in salvation. Or, how about Galatians 2.21? Listen to the grace of God. I do not nullify, same language, the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died with no purpose. What did Paul say? If I truly understand the grace of God, then there's nothing I can add to my salvation. Grace is unmerited favor given to me. I cannot add to it. I cannot take away from it. I cannot out-sin it. I cannot 
Bring more to make it better. It's, it's grace. So this church was literally going around probably saying, we marvel that God would save us in salvation. His grace has, has visited us. We're blown away. And Barnabas would have seen that and said, they're not legalists. They're not trusting in works. They're not trusting in externals. They believe it's by grace through faith they've been saved. However, beloved, it could not have just stopped there. Because sometimes we stop there, right? We say, oh, someone knows the grace of God, and we flatten it out, as if that's all the Bible says about the grace of God. But in fact, through the book of Acts and through your New Testament, this same line, when the grace of God visits a life, it equally shows up in sanctification as much as it does in justification. This is so important. Why? The church today often says, if someone knows the grace of God, how do they know? Oh, they know they've been saved. But if that same grace that saved them in that single moment of salvation is not daily transforming them by the power of grace, then they can have no idea whether they've really known salvation grace. Let me show you that. Notice how the, I want to show you a bunch of passages with that line. The grace of God was known in Antioch. What's that look like? We know in salvation. How about sanctification? Look at Acts 13.43. We're going to fly through your Bible right now. and I might even ask a couple of you to read. Okay? Acts 13.43. We're focusing on what it looks like when a church shows off the grace of God, not only in salvation, but in sanctification. Notice Acts 13.43. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, so this is Paul preaching, many of the God-fearing proselytes, those were the partial proselytes to Judaism, followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking to them and were urging them, notice, to do what? Continue in the grace of God. It's not just a one-time act. It is salvific and marvelous and wonderful. But what Paul and Barnabas said, if you've truly experienced salvation grace, then continue in it by living sanctification grace. Notice 1 Corinthians 3. Someone read 1 Corinthians 3.10 for me and read it loud. One of you men, read that loud for me so we can hear you. wise master building builder I laid a foundation and another is building on it but each man must be careful how he builds on it wait a second we can't flatten out grace of God can we the grace of God was given in salvation and Paul says you better be careful how you build on that grace in sanctification grace as you keep progressing in grace and you grow in grace. See, too often, beloved, we flatten out grace and say it's just the grace of salvation. And anytime we talk about grace in sanctification, the ongoing work of us taking the means of grace and applying it, sometimes people even throw labels at a church like that and say, oh, that's a heavy-handed church, a legalistic church, a moralistic church. And what they're actually describing is when a church is so overwhelmed by grace, they take that same powerful redemptive grace and the means given by the Word and the Spirit and keep applying that grace to see power. This is the call of the New Testament. So Barnabas would have showed up and said, these people know salvation and they are living carefully with their life in grace. Notice, 1 Corinthians 15.10. Somebody read it for me. Grace of God again. You cannot miss the grace of God in ongoing sanctification because this is what Barnabas would have seen as well. Somebody read 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Wow. There we have Paul. 
who understands grace was an undeserved privilege that I did not merit, did not earn. However, for me not to be laboring and striving in the power of grace would have been the initial grace I had vain. Worthless, that's the word. Has no value. Somebody read 2 Corinthians 6.1. I'm going to overwhelm you with the grace of God comments. Think about this. Barnabas showed up and this is what he saw. Salvation grace and sanctification grace. 2 Corinthians 6.1. Be that as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. What did he just say? There is a way that you can live your life where the grace of God that you say you've received would be worthless, it would be vain, it would be empty. That means there's a way to live in grace that is powerful and there's a way to live that is vain. Somebody read Hebrews 12, 15. Look at the danger here of not understanding the grace of God and living in it in a powerful life and allowing bitterness to take over. Somebody read Hebrews 12, 15. Let me read it to you again. Start, start in 15. See that it, no one comes short of the grace of God. There's that same line from Antioch. No one comes short. How would you come short of the grace of God, author of Hebrews? You don't live a holy life. You don't deal with your sin. You don't battle by the power of grace and the power God gives. And a root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and defiles many. You live an unforgiving life. How do you ruin grace? An unforgiving, bitter life. Now look at 1 Peter 5.12. Someone... Someone new read that one for me. Peter's, by the way, when you're reading this, realize he's finishing up an entire charge to them full of loads of imperatives on how to stand in the midst of persecution. And look at how he sums up all the imperatives he's given. Somebody read 1 Peter 5.12. Everything that I just said in the book of 1 Peter to those believers that are about to face Nero's persecution, that was grace. The law is grace. Imperatives are grace. Instruction is grace. It's all grace to you. We flatten out grace and just talk about the grace of God and salvation. We're missing how, how the, the grace of God is a concept in your New Testament. And what Barnabas would have seen, it's, it's not static. It's dynamic. Barnabas would have showed up and said, they're standing, they're living holy lives, they're studying, they're growing, they're obeying, they're striving, they're humbled, they're holding on to grace, they're repenting when they don't walk in grace, they're, they're wanting to see more grace. Everything about their effort and their progress, they say it's grace-filled, and every time they obey, they thank God for His grace. But they don't flatten out grace and say, well, I had the grace of God and salvation, and now I just move on. No, it continues to be that which powers them, the unmerited power of God. So you might even say it this way, beloved. Grace becomes a synonym for power. <laughs> the power of God in salvation and the power of God in sanctification come by grace. Now look at Jude 4. There are those that abuse the grace of God. Same line. Somebody read Jude 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. 
ungodly persons to return the grace of our God until licentiousness hmm. deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. That means that people, and you and I all know people like this, if you view the grace of God in the Gospel as a license to live however you want, the Bible puts you in the category of those that are deceiving people and trying to defile them. I mean, think about the seriousness. Look at that again. Just look closely at it. Certain persons have crept in. Do you know what Jude says? A person that wants to view just salvation grace as enough and not see sanctification grace and tell people you can live however you want because you say you know salvation grace, he calls those people false teachers and unbelievers. Look at Certain persons have crept in. They've slid into church life unnoticed. That means they came in with slick language. Oh, I love the grace of God. I love the grace of the gospel. You should see what He's done in my life. Now you don't have to worry so much about everything now that He's done that great work in you. Long beforehand, we're marked out for condemnation. Ungodly persons. What do they do? They take the grace of God and hand it to you as a license to live however you want. And in doing that, they deny that they ever knew the Master as Lord. Do you want to know what I think Barnabas saw? He saw people that hated the idea of abusing grace. They loved the grace of God and they wanted to see it on display in their life. Yeah, Dave. No, um, I was thinking of um, Uh huh. Do you know what my notes say next, brother? <laughs> if there's one passage I could take you to that I think Barnabas saw, I think we could go to Titus 2, 11 to 14. So why don't we go there? No, I want you to read it. Read it. Dave, that, brother, you and I have been at this for 11 years together, buddy. We, we are in harmony, my friend. I love that. You, don't, you didn't steal my thunder. I love it. Wow, look at verse 11 again, what Dave just brought up. For the grace of God. There's what Barnabas saw. It's appeared and it brought salvation. How did Barnabas know these people's lives had been transformed? Think about it. Luke lifts to the surface this idea. They've turned to the Lord. They've believed. And when the godly man showed up who has discernment, who knows his Bible, what he saw was grace all over their life. And what did he see when it appeared? Look closer at it again. He saw a righteous, holy, set-apart, godly group of believers. They had left the culture, joined the church. Notice. Look close at it. What did the grace of God bring when it appeared? Salvation and instructing us to what? Deny ungodliness and worldly desires. So to be shedding worldliness. Beloved, you who are striving against your sin, who are battling, look at those two word groups there. You are, you are battling to shed worldliness, to shed everything that's not God-like in you. You are putting on display what grace does to transform a life. That's what Barnabas would have saw. He would have walked in and said, these people hate their sin. These people are serious about leaving the culture. These people are being holy and honest where they were untrustworthy. They're being, they're being um, faithful where they were unfaithful. They're forgiving where they were unforgiving. I'm seeing only what grace could do. Look at this. Worldly desires, abandoning them. 
What's he saying? You still have ungodliness and you still have worldly desires, but you're fighting them. And now you're living sensibly. That's the word. Carefully. Thoughtfully. With the word of God in your mind. I'm in verse 12. Righteously and godly in this present in this present age. And then what Mike brought up at the beginning, there are hopeful people looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, our God and our Savior. Beloved, what, what Barnabas saw that was unmistakable, the first characteristic of the church of Antioch, was it was unmistakable that the grace of God was all over these people's life. What does that say for us? When people meet us and we say we know God, we say that we know we're a Christian, that we've experienced the grace in the Gospel, they should also see the grace of transformation. They should see us growing and striving through the power of grace. I was talking to some friends recently and telling them this story that could only be ascribed to the grace of God and what only God can do or the power of God that comes by His grace. And I'll tell you the story. There was a... I just preached recently at a church where this gentleman is training to be an elder. And this gentleman that's trained to be an elder used to be at Grace Emanuel. But at Grace Emanuel, he went through the church discipline process in Matthew 18, where you confront him with one person, confront him with two people. If he doesn't repent, you tell it to the church. If he doesn't repent, then you declare him an unbeliever from heaven, Matthew 18. Well, around the step two part of the process in this, in this restoration process, that's what church discipline is. We want to restore people. We want to see them made right. He left our church and landed at this other church. And they said, hey, we'll pick up the process. Great, we trust this church. So they picked up the process. Over a, a, a sequence of the, the next coming years, his ex-wife, who he had left, started counseling with him with the pastor there. And his ex-wife, who he had left, who he was going to be in church discipline the way he was running for, she gets saved. <laughs> He repents and gets restored. They start premarital counseling together again to head into their second marriage. Together. They get remarried now, both walking with Christ. The kids get restored under their parents, mom and dad again. And now he's in training to be an elder at this church. Now, I was telling some friends about that and I said, the world could never account for that. What would they say? When does that happen in the world? Never. What did Barnabas see? He saw lives so transformed and so rocked by the power of the gospel that all he saw was gracious stories of God's grace being put on display. And those that had bankrupt lives were being restored. I told these friends, I said, only God and His grace could account for something like that. Remember how I said to you earlier that, that in this church they turned to the Lord, which was probably implying public baptism? I love baptisms here at Grace Emmanuel. And I love them at any good church. Any healthy church that has baptisms. Why? Because people go forth, and we don't just celebrate that they go, I believe the grace of God and the gospel. Thanks. And we dunk them. <laughs> they say, and here's what I was. And here's how I lived. And here was my rebellion. And here's where God came, and He rescued me, and His grace showed up. And now let me tell you how the grace of God has been put on display, and my life's been transformed from one measure of grace to another measure of grace. And now I stand here today saved by grace, being sanctified by grace, using the means He gives me in grace, and I stand up here today transformed. That's what Barnabas was seeing all over Antioch. Radical transformations. Beloved, no church is a true church unless people that know what the grace of God looks like 
see believers evidencing the grace of God, which made Jerusalem go, we need to send Paul, we need to send reinforcements. This is a true church. This is a movement of God. You know how sad it is today? I was thinking about it. The dead, spiritually, that don't know the grace of God, they can show up and sing, can't they? (laughs) They can show up and read their Bible. They can walk in the hallways and talk to people. They can put on externals. They can attend a Bible study. But what they cannot say is here in my life is where I see power where I never had it before. That's the grace of God in me. So I leave you with this. One encouragement and one challenge from this first point of this church. The encouragement is if you're someone that's striving in the grace of God, you've known it in salvation and you're seeing it in sanctification, you would have been in Antioch and Barnabas would have showed up and said, you're an encouragement. You're striving, not perfection, direction. I see God's grace being evidence because you had power you did not have. But I have a second question to ask you. And I asked myself it this week. Where in your life should the grace of God be more on display that it's not? And I had some areas in my life where I thought, God's grace promises power and transformation when I take a hold of the means God gives me, His Word and His Spirit. And yet there are some areas in my life, the grace of God, if someone came into my life, they would not say that's the grace of God, they say that's the flesh. Where in your life do you need to be more like Antioch? Where you need to shore up an area and go to the means of grace, sitting under the Word, prayer, Bible study, sanctification, discipleship, ever striving, everything the Bible says is a grace. Where do you need to go so you can grow in that? Because this little church teaches us that the most faithful little church on the Bible, when godly men hung around it, they affirmed the grace of God is unmistakable. And I'll ask you this this morning. Maybe you're here and some of you wonder, could a godly person come into my life? Could a Barnabas come into my life? And if they did, and they followed me around for a week, would they say, yep, the way you live, that's power. That could only come from God. Only the hand of the Lord could have grabbed a hold of you. Or would you just look a lot like the world and they couldn't see the grace of the gospel? If they couldn't, you might not be in Antioch, beloved. So, that was today. They were affirmed by godly men. Next week, we're going to see their appetite for Scripture, their willingness to serve, and however much we get through, we'll keep going. But is this helpful to dig in and try and mine this out of Antioch? You're going to love the Church of Antioch by the time we're done. I'm loving the Church of Antioch. the, The most famous little church in the Bible. Now, I don't know how little they are. You just We don't know. We just know Jerusalem was huge and we know a multitude was saved. We don't know how many, but they're not as big as Jerusalem, so they're littler than them. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for the grace of God that teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and live sensibly. Lord, it'll be interesting when we see that who comes against Antioch the most is the religious those that profess to follow you. It seems in our day, Lord, that is our problem. We, we strive to live in the grace of God and what happens is those that also say they love the grace of God sometimes oppose us the most. And so we must define grace the way you do. Not just as salvation grace, but sanctification grace and progressive grace and ongoing grace that empowers us as we submit to your word. We go to communion this morning. We want to confess areas, Lord, where we do not show off the grace of God so we can take communion with a clean conscience. And we want to rejoice in the forgiveness that You've granted us for the sins where we do not show off Your grace like we ought. And then we want to recommit, Lord, to work on those areas so we can see more grace on display 
And as we'll see next week, unbelievers can watch our life and be saved. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys are dismissed.